listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded at the ABA's National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services at Stanford Law School in Stanford, California. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. Joining me now, I am so very pleased to welcome President William Hubbard. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Great. Thank you so much. You do a terrific job. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And also, I would uh, like to welcome my co-host again, Mr. Uh, Victor Lee. He joins us from the ABA. He is their legal affairs writer. Welcome. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this is fantastic, guys. We've been having a wonderful time at at this uh, national summit here. Uh, This speaking engagement has been amazing. The guest lineup, the the presentations, uh, the moderators. I mean, it's all been very top shelf. And when we got the invitation to come, we were very excited. So thank you so much for extending the invitation to us. Thank you. The more people who learn about our justice gap and possible ways to address that gap, the better off we all are. The public will benefit tremendously from more information about what can be done to innovate and improve how we deliver legal services in our country. Great, great. Now, before we get started in our discussion, and everyone knows that you're the president of the ABA, but I wanted to learn a little bit more about you personally. So could you tell us where you're from and what you do besides uh, your work for the ABA? Well, I'm traveling a lot this year. So my legal residence is still Columbia, South Carolina, and I do check uh, every month to make sure my law firm uh, makes sure there's a deposit made in my (laughs) bank account because I've been on the road so much on behalf of the American Bar Association. Uh, I'm a litigator and trial lawyer with Nelson Mullins, Riley, and Scarborough. It's a firm of about 500 lawyers. Uh, when I started a long time ago, I think I was the 16th lawyer. So, And I, after clerking for a federal judge, I've been with the same firm for my entire career. Fantastic. So, uh, President Hubbard, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, was, what were the reasons behind you know, creating this conference, and why did you reach out to the people that you did? Well, it starts before that we we decided to have this summit. It it starts with the proposition that we have this incredible justice gap in our country, and the way that we have been trying to address that gap, you know, one on one lawyering, one case at a time, despite the best efforts of lawyers, uh, all the work and support of legal services corporation programs, pro bono efforts of lawyers, uh, we still haven't closed the gap, and if anything. Thing, the gap is widening. So you have to ask yourself, if, if we're not closing the gap using traditional means, the obvious conclusion from that is you have to change the way you're delivering legal services. So that was the premise, the predicate behind establishing the Commission on the Future of Legal Services. And this summit is a part of that effort. It, uh, it also includes uh, efforts at the state level. It includes work through the sections and divisions of the American Bar Association. Uh, it includes, um, we've had presentations at the ABA Section, uh, section Officers Conference, um, many law schools, Uh, But we really are focused on this national summit as a culmination of the first phase of what we call our outreach effort. And that has included um, sessions convened in several states thus far. We've had very successful programs uh, in Missouri, 
uh, in Michigan, in Arizona, and we have one in a couple of weeks in North Carolina. And those grassroots efforts, uh, you know, Justice Brandeis and that um, new state ICE company versus Liebman uh, defined the, the states as the laboratories of social, economic, and legal reform. And we do believe that some of the best ideas will come from the bottom up. It'll come from state and local leaders uh, and, and innovators. And we're trying to bring those best practices, those platforms, um, those techniques to, to here at this national summit to, to share those ideas and cross-pollinate, cross-fertilize, and, and come up with an action plan going forward that not only helps close the justice gap, but also provides strategies for lawyers who want to make sure that they're adapting uh, to the or taking advantage of the technologies that are available to improve the way that they deliver legal services in a more efficient and cost-effective manner and thus reach more people, reach more clients. Great, great. And, you know, I we got an, we had an opportunity to go out and cover ABA mid-year. And I think my ma- the magic word I took away from that was volunteer. You know, the ABA is doing some amazing things to the practice of law and to justice uh, through the volunteer work that's being done. And obviously, there's some uh, excellent staff members that uh, assist uh, you all in, in doing that. And I wanted uh, to try to connect some members of the ABA with what's going on today. You know, we've got the, the National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services, and it's being sponsored in part uh, Stanford University. Law School is uh, putting this on, but also it's the, the, the ABA Presidential Commission on the Future of Legal Services. And so I was wondering if you could help connect uh, us with the members. How did this come about and uh, what's the history of the drive behind this? Well, again, it, it goes back to the idea of, of trying to look at the landscape and, and look at this justice gap in our country and to, to, to acknowledge the fact that we have not been able to bridge this justice gap using traditional means. And so, and also a recognition that there were incredible tools available and many uh, companies were, technology companies were starting to deliver legal services in spaces that lawyers were not uh, meeting the, the needs of clients and potential clients. And so with that in mind, we created this commission because what what I felt was happening is that we innovators were meeting with innovators and regulators were meeting with regulators and judges were having their conferences and and lawyers were gathering small firm lawyers with each other and big firm managing partners with each other and we professors uh, the same but we weren't we weren't breaking down those silos so the purpose of the creation of the commission was to was to have a representative group. It's an intentionally large group. If if it weren't for the premise that you want to bring all perspectives together, you'd have a much smaller group, a more efficient uh, group. But we have uh, t- thirty members and and okay. also some advisors. But we try to we're trying to represent so many different facets of the delivery of legal services. We've made it large, and we've got we have representation from state courts and federal courts and solos and big firm lawyers and legal service providers academics and 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 on so um, again this is an idea it's, it's the, the commission itself is based on the premise that we can learn so much by talking with each other and talking to people who are looking at things through a different prism than we necessarily would look through if we were operating by ourselves now, I've only been with the ABA for a little over a year now, and actually one of the first things I covered for the ABA Journal was uh, there was a meeting um, uh, for uh, for the commission talking about this justice gap and what are some programs uh, that were in the pipeline or in the works that would help uh, bridge that gap. 
Now, as, as ABA president, obviously, you only have one year in office, and everyone that I've spoken to, you know, told me that this has been a very, you know, strong issue for you from the beginning. This is something that you emphasized, you know, from your first day in office. So I guess my question is, you know, the ABA, and I'm still learning about the ABA, but uh, there's so many things that the ABA uh, is focused on, so many important issues. Why did you choose this this particular issue as something that you were so passionate about that you wanted to uh, get started from, you know, your first day in office? Because I believe that the ABA has an incredible power to convene, to bring people together, and that it was time that we asserted ourselves in a leadership role because the problem, as I saw it, was an intractable problem that, that cried out for leadership. And the ABA, I thought, and I still feel, is best suited as the national voice of the legal profession, uh, the national organization that represents all lawyers, not just specialists in a particular area, to bring all of those voices and talents together to see if we could do something to, to bridge this justice gap, to move the needle. And uh, so I think the ABA is committed to this for the long term. Uh, this commission will continue into next year and I hope into the future. Uh, one of the beauties of it is the partnership that we've developed, uh, not only within the sections and divisions of the ABA, but with the state and local bars, uh, the National uh, Center for State Courts, the Conference of Chief Justices, the American Association of Law Schools, uh, Legal Services Corporation. Uh, this has become something that we all have joined hands to, to try to make a difference on. And, and I think um, the ABA, we, we volunteered our convening power and our uh, staff capability to try to be a force to, to move this forward. I, I think we're uniquely qualified as the national organization and the national voice of the legal profession. The, this is the role, this is the leadership that the ABA should be asserting. Now, President Hubbard, you know, I, it's been remarkable. I mean, we, we've been hearing about, um, you know, justice gap, and I've been hearing about people that are unrep uh, underrepresented and how uh, not enough people can afford legal services. But, you know, today through uh, doing this series of interviews and talking with the many presenters that you've you've brought forward and, and watching some of their presentations, I've been left with a, um, you know, a more realistic I guess, look at the real life consequences when there's gaps in justice for everybody. Gaps of justice uh, to after today for me means a lot more than it did before. I mean, we talk with uh, the gaps in justice for people that are trying to get resolution in family law matters. And uh, in one particular uh, jurisdiction, 80% of the people that come before uh, a, ju a judge do not have representation. And then we hear about uh, people that otherwise make a pretty good living, but they don't qualify because their income is too high for some of the special relief programs, but then they can't afford an attorney. And, you know, we hear about, uh, you know, people getting out of prison that don't have the resources that they need to get their lives back on track and they end up being a repeat offender. And so this, 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 these gaps mean a lot. I mean, they're affecting lives in very profound ways. The, you know, this social contract, I've used that word before, the, the social contract that binds us together, this, this huge, you know, huge volumes of laws that we live by have real life implications. What, in with all of these presentations and meeting with everybody and being part of this event, planning and hosting it, what, what to you has been the biggest takeaway for you, uh, the consequences of gaps in justice? 
Well, I think you start with a proposition, and it begins with the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. It's the, it's the first priority of our nation. And you cannot have justice if you have 80 to 85 percent of the people in a country not having access to civil justice. And, and that's the priority. That's the urgency. You mentioned the family court problem. Um, 80% in California is the number we heard today, and it, it ranges across the country in the 50 states from 60 to 90% of the litigants in family court are self-represented. Now, that's a problem for the litigants themselves. It also is a problem for the courts because it takes extra effort uh, uh, clerks of court have to stop what they're doing to try to address these needs. They have to try to explain the processes to people who are unrepresented. And so, and, and family court is really where the rubber hits the road. Uh, that's the entry point for so many people who have problems. And some of the, some of the disputes there are the most intense of all. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I know you've done a segment on the limited license legal technicians and that, Establishment of that program is a recognition that we have not met our obligation to the public by providing uh, legal support for litigants in the family court. But it, it's beyond that. Um, it's, it's a broad issue. And let me mention one other fact. I think we've seen the unrest in our country over uh, certain police actions and how that's prompted, uh, kindled some flames of, of, of uh, anguish and, and, and distrust of the, le- of the justice system. And I think part of that anguish derives from the lack of civil justice, the lack of access to uh, relief in, on housing issues and health care issues and, and uh, education and, and the fundamental uh, functions of life where people feel like they don't have an outlet through the system. If you, if you step back even another step, you realize that you have a justice system so that people do not have to take to the streets or feel compelled to take to the streets. And so having an orderly justice system that's accessible to the people is a primary function of our country. And some of these programs simply are not, we don't have civil Gideon in the United States. So it's up to lawyers to provide pro bono legal services. We have minimal uh, governmental support for these services. But the lawyers themselves have to make a living, too. They can't devote all of their time and attention to pro bono work. So taking advantage of innovative platforms and technology and new strategies will allow us to reach more people and deliver services to more people and provide a stronger and more robust justice system that I think will also relieve some of the tension that we're seeing in our country today. One big takeaway that I you know, had from the from all the various speakers today is that, and I guess I'm going to quote Hillary Clinton here, but it, it it really in order to really bring about innovation, it does take a village. Like you're looking at people from all sorts of different industries. You know, we had someone from Doctors Without Borders, we had people from business, we had people, um, you know, who do not have JDs and you know probably have never. Um, you know, have never, you know, never had any intention of practicing law or being involved with lawyers. So, but on the other hand, you know, the legal industry can be a very insular, can be very, um, you know, resistant to outsiders, people that, you know, have not gone through the kind of rigorous regulations that they've had to go through. So how do you balance those two, um, you know, those two forces? Well, innovation, rarely is there a eureka moment on, in innovation. It's an, typically an, an iterative process. 
and and you see that when you go back and study the the history of the computer. I mean, it didn't start, didn't overnight somebody flip a switch and we had computing. It was an intense effort over time. This is part of an iterative process to try to improve our justice system. And part of my job and part of the job of the, the judges who are here, the chief justice of the, justices of the various states and the state bar presidents who are here is to have a conversation with lawyers uh, who are resistant to change because they're uncomfortable with change. All of us are, are to some extent uncomfortable with change. We like predictability and we like knowing what we're going to do in the course of a day or over the next year. But this is about solving a justice problem, but it's also, it's also about making sure that lawyers understand that the world around them is changing. The earth is shifting under our feet. And we need to make sure that we're advising lawyers that there's uh, many people, uh, many members of the public are migrating toward technology companies that provide legal services because they feel like those services are delivered more efficiently, more effectively, um, and with better, more predictable results than in the current structure of our justice system. And so we have an obligation to work on the justice gap, but also to alert lawyers that there's a change afoot, but there's an opportunity here that lawyers can remain and should remain at the center of our justice process in our country. But to do that, we have to lead, we have to adapt, and we have to be open-minded about what the future might look like. President Hubbard, um, the, the premise to my next question is that you know, the gaps in justice for everybody didn't happen overnight. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people would say, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you count yourself among uh, among them, but uh, a lot of people say that the the access to justice is decreasing. You know, increasingly over time, with the expenses rising and people aren't able to uh, get the kind of help that they need through the court system, that this 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 gap is growing. And we didn't get here overnight. And so, my 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 question is. It's going to take time to to get through this, and it's going to take sustained efforts. And, and the ABA is going to uh, we're going to need the ABA to provide that leadership, to give the example, to find the answers, to to talk with the experts, to to bring the messaging to the attorneys, like you were just uh, telling Victor uh, here. And so, one of the most impressive things about the ABA that I find in, a, in a, such a large volunteer organization is succession planning. And as you hand the reins over to President-elect Paulette Brown. Um, what are some of the things that you're talking about going forward in these innovations, looking for innovations to help the practice of law and to, to drive this change you need? What, what are you guys talking about today so that you guys can move forward tomorrow? Well, one of the things that, that, that we did very uh, carefully was, was Paulette Brown was the liaison from the ABA Board of Governors to the Commission on the Future of Legal Services so that she would be fully steeped in the work of the tr- uh, of the commission uh, this year so that we could carry these uh, efforts forward next year. And her, her heir apparent, Linda Klein, um, has expressed to me incredible excitement about this work. So I think, I think you see momentum, and, and I can't talk about who might follow uh, uh, Linda Klein because it's still an open election, but there's an unopposed candidate. And, and that person, uh, if, if she is elected, will also, I think, uh, be pushing these efforts forward. This is to me, it's not a, it's not a one-off event. Uh, this is a systemic problem that will require sustained effort over time. 
And as a number of the speakers said today, I think especially Richard Suskind, uh, there is no finish line. We won't come up with a proposal or a platform that we can lock into concrete and say this is the answer. I mean, this is, this is a, a process. We will have to continue to try to improve. But what we do hope will come out of this conference are some, some suggestions and ideas and, and tools for lawyers that they can use to make their practices more efficient, to lower costs so that they can reach more people and identify uh, software programs and, and um, Internet-based platforms that will allow lawyers to participate in a more robust way in the solving of the justice gap in our country and tapping into this latent market. I mean, there are people who can pay for legal services that are not paying for legal services because uh, they view the complexity of it, the intimidation factors, something, the, the confusion, they, and they just don't know how to get started uh, in the system. They don't know where to go first. They don't really know who to trust. So we have to go to where the people are, and we have to establish a trust relationship, and we have to simplify the intake process. So obviously, as someone who gives a lot of interviews and who you know has all this information, um, you know, right at the tip, right at the tip of his tongue, uh, you know, this is second nature to you. But um, but let me ask you this: uh, Was there anything that you heard or you know saw during the presentations, either today or you know during yesterday's uh, session? Was there anything that that, sh- that surprised you that you weren't expecting? I was surprised to hear about some of the some of the wonderful um, changes being made in Louisiana with the criminal justice system. I think we focus, and we should, and perhaps the primary focus of this summit is on civil legal services. But we have some significant problems with the criminal justice system, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. So any kind of innovation that we have that allows people to get a skill while they're in prison and get some mentoring while they're in prison so that they can reenter society in a productive way is something that I think is very important and we perhaps don't talk enough about. But um, we can no longer sustain a system where we have 5% of the population uh, in our country and 25% of the world's prisoners in a country. It's just it's not a sustainable model. Uh, the ABA has been working very hard, especially this year, on sentencing reform. Uh, and looking for new models, and, and we've identified uh, laws in, through a, a collateral consequences program where we've identified 45,000 laws in the various states and in the federal code that prohibit or limit the reentry of people who have completed their, their sentences back into society, limitations on housing, uh, professional licensing, student loans, voting. And so those are things as well that are you know, fundamental to our justice system. And and we have had a taste of that at this conference, but I think in the future we need to spend more time and more energy uh, highlighting some of the possibilities to improve our criminal justice system. President Hubbard, as we've participated in, in some of the ABA's events and uh, reported on what's been going on, we've had the pleasure of interviewing chairs and, and people in different leadership roles in the different and the many different divisions of the ABA. And I think I think uh, it's 3,400 separate active groups operating within the ABA, and we've had the fortune of talking to uh, many of these folks, and they comment on how their volunteer work with the ABA has changed their lives. So they've they've met a lot of friends, they've become better at the practice of law, and, and 
here you are at the top of the of the you're at the top of the mountain as far as running the ABA. You're president. It's been quite a journey. You know, a lot of work, a lot of travel, a lot of speaking engagements. I, I'm sure this is a huge impact in your life. I'm, you know, you were talking about how you had to visit with your with your law firm and, and, and check on them and, and how you're gone a lot. And so I guess with such a big investment of your time and with so many projects going on and talking to so many people, uh, I just want, I would like to kind of close out this interview with more of a personal question. What, what is the most rewarding part of your tenure as president of the ABA? What, what did you learn the most? What's the biggest lesson? Well, I think the most rewarding part is to see the change in the conversation and the change in the, the way that judges and lawyers and bar leaders are looking at this justice gap and the future of legal services. The conversation, I think, has shifted from one of protectionism and fear of the future to one uh, more of an understanding that, that change is afoot, and we either disrupt or we're going to be disrupted. And so we have a choice. And I think more people accepting the fact that, that we need to lead that disruption rather than have the disruption uh, foisted upon us is, is something I feel good about, that we've exposed these issues broadly and deeply, and people are buying into the fact that we as lawyers have a leadership responsibility to the justice system. And so my takeaway, the thing that, that I mean, I'm, I'm not prepared to declare victory by any means, but the only reason anyone should ever take on a job like this is if you see it as an opportunity to try to make a small difference, to make our justice system just a little bit more just. And that's the motivation and that's the reward. And, but it's not, it's not one person by any means. Um, you do work hard as ABA president, but it's clearly a team effort. It requires everybody pulling together. Nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. You see that in this conference. The more we can build teamwork and collaboration and take advantage of people, not only from the legal sector, but from other service industries and other businesses, the better off we'll be and we'll have a better system of justice in our country. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our time for our program today, but I want to offer our sincerest thank you, President Hubbard, for joining us today and, and sharing with us. Thank you for all the good work that you do to expose the public to these issues. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.